It's the BBP TV show since 2012, where amazing guests share their digital adventures. Who will we meet today? Small biz influencer? Up-and-coming trendsetter? Accomplished author? You never know who'll be dropping by. And now, here's your host, Elaine Lindsay, the bionic glamourpreneur with Truel Social Media, who's the second most curious person on the planet. Hello, hello. I'm so happy to be back today. It's lovely to be here with a wonderful guest. This is going to absolutely be a very, very cool. I know I say that a lot, but this is going to be a really cool show. I want you to meet Gina L. Osborne. Hi, Gina. Hello, everyone. Hello. Gina, you know how we switch things up here and we bring all kinds of people on the show to talk about what they do and their digital journeys. Well, we're going to cover some really cool stuff first because, wait till you hear this, Gina's an expert in navigating chaos, crisis, and change. Having responded to catastrophic terrorist attacks and cyber hacks, ready? As an FBI special agent and chasing Cold War spies in the army, Gina knows that crises can be managed, chaos can be controlled, and change is inevitable. Gina serves through speaking, coaching, and hosting executive roundtables, VIP days, and masterminds. She provides tools and techniques to eliminate self-imposed obstacles, stop tolerating the intolerable, have the courage to lead authentically, and create clarity and confidence to become unstoppable. And that's not all. She hosts a Behind the Crime Scene podcast that gives you all the real story behind some of the biggest crimes in history. Things like Ghislaine Maxwell and the horrific shooting in Colorado in the theater. That's going to be coming up shortly. There's a lot of series involved in her Behind the Crime Scene podcast. And we will be sure and give you the links to all of that when the show ends. Hello, hello. It's just, I, I am actually, I have to say, a little gobsmacked by all the things you have done. And then I look at this lovely smiling lady who looks like you could be in an ad, an actress, what have you. <laughs> Not the first thing people think of when they think FBI or Army. Gosh, well, that's helped me in my career and uh, it hurt me just a little bit, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I suppose it would. It would make a, a big difference. So I want to let you talk about all of those things, but I want us to go back first to when you were a kid, did it ever occur to you you would join the Army or, moreover, be part of the FBI? When I was a kid, I was a big dreamer, and I always wanted to be a writer. When I was in junior high school, I used to write Happy Days in Laverne and Shirley episodes for fun. When I was in high school, I would write, I wrote a, a full feature film. And uh, I have to admit that 
I was in love with the show MASH and I wanted Alan Alda to be my mentor. So I bought some flowers, went up to 20th Century Fox, told the gate guard I had flowers for Alan Alda and they let me in. Oh so my God. <laughs> I visited with Mr. Alda and he gave me some great advice. All three times I did this, he said to go out and get some great experiences if you want to be a writer. So I, during that time, I was fascinated with the Cold War, the KGB. It was the 80s. It was the decade of the spy. So I knew if I wanted to go into the CIA, I would need a four-year degree and a sense of adventure. And I had the sense of adventure. I didn't have the four-year degree. So two years into college, I was sitting in the library and a young man came up and started telling me about the Army's counterintelligence program and how I could get my education, I could live overseas and I can chase spies. And the next day I went to the Army recruiter and I signed up and uh, went to basic training and uh, was in the Army for six years chasing spies across Europe. Wow. Wow. Like just, it sounds amazing. It sounds so exciting, so incredible, but it's certainly not the dream that every little girl has. And I think it's incredible that you, you must've been nurtured in, in allowing yourself to have those kind of dreams. Well, I had a very strong mother figure. Uh, I came from a broken home. My dad left when I was nine years old and my mom was there to raise my sister and me. And she had been a hairdresser at the Disneyland Hotel when before we were born. And she had been a housewife for I think 12 or 13 years. And she decided to get into real estate. And so that was something that was all based on commission back then and it still is. Yeah. But to see her take that, um, the risk, uh, and she went out and did what she needed to do. And in the first year she made the million dollar club. And that was back when houses were $40,000 a piece. And she yeah. got into that club the first year. So she was a really good role model for me. Oh my God. Yeah. It sounds like it. And, and your, your sister has an incredible career as well. So yes, your mom really uh, did an amazing job with both of you. Yeah, she did. So, Army intelligence, counterintelligence, wow. Uh, that's, I mean, how much of, I guess the, you have to go through basic training like everybody else, mm -hmm. but uh, being able to travel through Europe, how much of it was like scary and dangerous? You know, I think it was a lot more dangerous than I gave it credit for. Now being a mature woman looking back uh, in my on my life when I was in my 20s, but it was truly the dream that I had. I was assigned to a specialized team and we investigated the highest profile espionage cases in the European theater. So whenever a case would happen, they would they have to come in and, you know, out of the blue in the middle of the night, and we could be on the road for a few days to a few months uh, chasing somebody who was trying to sell secrets, uh, American secrets, to the, the Soviets. So it was really a fascinating time in history and just a fascinating time for a, a young former cocktail waitress from Orange County, California, <laughs> turned army spy. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's a long way from cocktail waitress to counterintelligence. Sure, it was. So after six years, you decided this was enough or where else did you want to go? 
Well, the Cold War was over. I had my four-year degree. I uh, earned my degree in psychology. And it was, uh, the wall had come down, and so it was a completely different environment. So it was trying to identify who the enemy was now that uh, the wall had come down. So it was time. It was a really good uh, transition time for me. And in 1996, I was selected to become an FBI agent. I went to Quantico, and I was very fortunate to be assigned in the Los Angeles division, actually in Orange County. My first arrest in the FBI was across the street from my high school. So it was nice to be home and serve my community. Yeah, absolutely. So looking back in your FBI career, what is the, I guess the the most, I want to say the most um, exciting case you were on in terms of maybe how how much effort you had to put in. I don't mean exciting in because I realize that on your behind the crime scene podcast, it's it's about some really horrific stuff, mm-hmm. but. In, in your career, I think you, you have a rather wide, wide swath of, of different types of cases. Yes. Well, when I first came to the field office here in Orange County, I was assigned to the counterintelligence squad, which I thought was very smart. I had six years of this great experience, but they also did civil rights on that squad. So they gave me a case where Thai girls were being brought into the United States and forced into prostitution. And here in Orange County, California, there is a district called Little Saigon, and it's the largest population of Vietnamese people outside of Vietnam. And that these Vietnamese gangs, they were the ones who were bringing these Thai girls in and forcing them into prostitution. So I was very fortunate to link up with a detective with the Westminster Police Department by the name of Tommy Ratcliffe. And at the time, the FBI and the Westminster Police Department really didn't get along. There had been some sort of rift, but I had no idea. And I just went over to the department and uh, said, hey, you want to work this case together? And it took the chief to approve of me working just one case. And that one case turned into five years being on this task force in the basement of the Westminster Police Department as the only FBI agent and the only woman investigator on the team. But it was fascinating because we worked everything from um, the organized crime, uh, violent crime, loan sharking, extortions, murder for hire. So any major violent offense, offenses that were going on in Little Saigon during that five-year period, I was part of it. Wow. And, so I would and, say that was probably a time in my life before I got into management that uh, that I was running around yeah. <laughs> making a difference. No, well, I, I think you, you made a difference the whole time, but it is certainly different when you're in the field. I, I, yes. I assume <laughs> yeah. I have absolutely no knowledge of that. <laughs> but from Little Saigon, tell me where you went, because what I think is really incredible and what relates so much to the digital audience is the fact that you got into cybersecurity. Yes, I did. So after uh, the reason why I left Little Saigon was because of 9-11. So after 9-11, pretty much everyone worked terrorism for an extended period of time. I became the counterterrorism program coordinator for the Los Angeles division. And then I also ran a squad that anytime there was a terrorist attack in Southeast Asia, 
or India or Australia, my team would go over if an American person or an American interest was a victim of that terrorist attack. So I did that. And then in order for us to promote in the FBI, we have to go back to the mothership. And so I went on to our inspection staff and that's where the FBI would go out every two weeks. We would inspect an office, a field office, and all of their programs and their finances to make sure that they're effective and efficient. But none of the team leaders on the inspection staff wanted to look at the cyber programs because nobody had experience. And cyber was relatively new for the FBI. This was in 2005 that I started doing this. So I volunteered and I'm a big believer, volunteer because you never know where it's going to take you. And then I sort of became the subject matter expert on program management for the cyber program for the FBI while I was back at headquarters. And again, opportunities open when you open yourself up for those opportunities. And uh, right when I was leaving headquarters, Los Angeles, they created an assistant special agent in charge position strictly for computer forensics and cyber investigations. And so for the last 11 years of my career from 2007 until 2018, I ran that program. And it was the largest cyber program in the FBI. In the FBI, yeah. So having, it, that is, it's such a, it's such a huge part now of everyone's life. Yes, cybersecurity is critical for every single person that has a smartphone or a computer. Yes. You know, it's it's no longer you know gangs and 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 people that are nefarious or or big corporations or or even spies. It comes right down to you know, John Q. Public, who, who's got his smartphone in his hand, he has to be concerned about cybersecurity, right? Oh, absolutely. And when I go out and I speak with boards, uh, I yeah. tell them the weakest link is the human side of it. Because if you're clicking on the links, if you don't have strong passwords, that's the weakest link that's going to get your entire corporation in, in hot water. And in 2014, I was in charge of the Sony investigation where Sony Pictures Entertainment was hacked by North Korea. And that was such a huge catastrophic attack. And that shifted the way I, as a leader in cybersecurity for the FBI, handled things. It was more important to shift to the prevention than it was to the reaction of those things. Yeah. So, yeah, it's so, so important for corporations to prevent these attacks, not necessarily through buying the most expensive high-tech equipment, but in training their people, that uh, that's the weakest link right there. And that, that's where you're going to get in trouble. And, and that's such a good point, because I think that a lot of times that's what people are afraid of, the fact that there's going to be all these huge costs. I think an awful lot of it, in all honesty, is common sense. Sure. You know, once make yourself aware, learn. It's not just you and the people that work in cybersecurity. We all need to take on board the fact that these are very difficult times we live in and we have to protect ourselves first and foremost and, and protect our kids. Yes. And it's so important to understand what the scams are, what the schemes are, how they yes. get the power into your computer. So cybersecurity is important and you can prevent so much by just knowing what those things are. And for anyone who wants a tip uh, a tip sheet for cybersecurity, they can go to my website at the end for behindthecrimescene.com and uh, I'll send you a tip, uh, tip sheet to keep yourself safe online. 
And that's perfect. And we will make sure that we add the information about the tip sheet to Gina's page on BBP TV show so that you always have the opportunity. Because I firmly believe that we all do have to protect ourselves and also educate those that that aren't as aware. Because it can be as simple as someone just clicking a link. And, you know, how, how many passwords? What is the percentage now of passwords that are password one, two, three? Exactly. And, and what I tell people is forget about the passwords, have passphrases, because that's yes. the, the more complex, the, the less likely that you're going to fall victim to a cyber, cyber attack. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we come from the same place when we talk about that, because I believe that it cannot be anything under 13 characters. You've got to mix it up. And a lot of, a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of the little apps that are out there that people use in social don't let you put more than 13 characters. Mm -hmm. Because I think the longer the phrase, the better. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, mix it up, use numbers in there. Um, I can't, my sister thinks it's really funny when she comes over, she wants to always ask for the household network password, not because she wants it, because there's a swear word in there and she likes to, to make me uncomfortable in front of my father. <laughs> Why does my wife do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, siblings, I tell you. <laughs> but but things like that and and things you know where you can put where you can put numbers in place of a, of letters in a word it, mm -hmm. it'll give you something great and I don't know what you think as cybersecurity expert but I often tell clients that you know if you have a book your very favorite book that you you're going to have forever or for some people that's even the bible open it to a page put a marker on the page and take a short sentence in which you can add a number and a special character. And you're always going to have that book. So you'll always be able to find the password, but mm -hmm. it's not on your computer or on your desk or, yeah. or on your smartphone. Yes. Yes. That, that, that's a really good tip. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Okay. Yeah. We did. <laughs> <laughs> well, not cybersecurity, but yeah. Uh, uh, so, 2018 is, is when you decided you were done? Yes. After 28 years total in law enforcement. 28 years. That's yes. wow. That's well, before I say anything else, okay, I just want to say thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Because, you know, you're, you're keeping people safe and it's tough work. Like, kid you not that I'm, I'm sure. And Orn, you can maybe pick a story for us of, of something that was a little dicey that you were a little concerned about being within a case that maybe you weren't sure of the outcome. Mm -hmm. Well, when I worked Asian organized crime, that was definitely dangerous. Um, being a tall blonde working in Little Saigon, people knew who I was. Oh, yeah. They knew I was the FBI. And um, so, so. And it was so violent down there, and it was very sad because the gangsters would target their own community. So this was in um, the 90s, and it was a time where the gangsters in Little Saigon, they were from Vietnam, and they were very, very ruthless. So um, 
there were times where we had, you know, we would have a wiretap up and we would hear that they were on their way to shoot someone or one of the loan sharks uh, had put, uh, you know, didn't get payment. And so they were going to go do something, some act of violence. So, so it was always making sure that our community was safe, kind of uh, sticking, staying one step ahead of everybody. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely hard work. Yeah. Yeah. But then also looking at, you know, going from that way back in the day to cyber. And I was so proud to lead the FBI cyber program because the agents and the analysts and the computer forensics people um, and the computer scientists, they just are so smart. And watching them play chess with the adversaries, oh, absolutely yeah. fascinating. Oh, yeah. I bet that'd be amazing. Yeah. But I really had to change my leadership style. I was always a lead from the front type leader because I came from the military background. Mm -hmm. And then when I went to uh, went to cyber, I realized I had about a thimble full of information compared to all of my cyber geniuses <laughs> from Ivy League schools and uh, very, very smart places. So I learned to be a servant leader. And, and that's really what you have to do with super creative, smart people. You can't, they don't, um, they don't want to be told what to do. They want to be included. They want to be supported. And once I figured that out, uh, it, it was, we had a really good time. And, and that's a, a really good point because I think things are changing just in general, you know, mm -hmm. throughout all the corporations and even mid-level companies, leadership has had to become more serving Yes. Than, than leading and certainly not full frontal anymore because everybody and, and specifically millennials really need to feel included. They need to feel that not are they only being of service, but there is a bigger, uh, a bigger aim for the company. It's not just about making money. And, and that causes them to you know, aim for a different type of leadership as well. And, and when I speak to people about navigating chaos, crisis, and change and being unstoppable through that, that's what I talk about, especially now during the pandemic. We need to be empowering our people because they've got enough going on at home. They've got enough going yes. on wondering whether or not they're going to be able to keep their jobs. Right now, it's a time for leaders to bring their people together, to give their employees ownership in the decisions that are being made for the company and to empower them to make great decisions and be part of the group as opposed to just an employee of the company. Absolutely. And, and in terms of that, okay, I think it's really incredible that you were able to pivot and go from, you know, a more military style of leadership and understanding that you had to turn that around. So, for leaders right now that are, you know, sort of stuck in, in the middle, they're not quite sure how to change from that more sort of militarized attitude. Someone like yourself, I'm sure, would be very helpful in that situation. Well, I think you have to know yourself. And the one thing that I recognized when I first became a leader in cyber was that I would 
lead from the front and I would turn around and I wouldn't see anybody behind me. So you really have to be aware of what's going yeah. on in your business to, to be, and I told everyone, I said, look, I never want to be the empress who wears no clothes. If I find out that I'm out there wearing no clothes, you're all going to be beheaded. So really you just have to trust your people and include your people in, in, uh, in, in your business and in the culture, really. And I think when I look back at my career, you asked me the, the question, the best part of my career was developing the young leaders behind me when I was in cyber. And I've got one in London right now, and he's uh, he's working as an assistant legal attache. Uh, one of my young supervisors took my job when I left. So really, it's about empowering people. And when everyone is empowered, that's where you get the most productivity for your, your buck. Yeah. And, and it's nice that, that more and more corporations are starting to understand that. Because I, I firmly believe if, if you give people the opportunity to rise, they will. Yes. And they will rise to any challenge if you just, like you say, empower them and, and allow them to shine. Yes. I was just interviewing the chief of the former chief of police for Aurora, Colorado, where they had that massive shooting, uh, movie theater shooting back in uh, 2012. And he told me his entire story. And I told him at the end, I said, you know, you had so many people making so many command decisions in the height of this chaos and this crisis. You must be a really, really great leader because otherwise these people would not have been able to have saved I think 27 people, they made the command decision that instead of waiting for the paramedics to come in, they were going to put these victims of these this horrific shooting into the patrol cars and take them to the hospital. And every person with a pulse that they took to the hospital lived. Survived. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, and, and that's being able to think on your feet like that mm -hmm. is also quite incredible. Yes. And and I'm sure I'm sure it comes with with the territory, okay? Like being in the FBI and and being even in the military, you you have to be able to think on your feet, and that doesn't necessarily happen in corporations. Leaders sometimes, you know, they go through the Ivy League schools, they get a position, they're at the top, uh, ahead of corporations, but they've never really been kind of trial by fire in anything sort of it's like real human mm -hmm. kind of what I want you know what I mean it, it's it, it's not like they've ever had to have a do or die situation mm -hmm. it's all kind of you know white collar and and nothing nothing that that is life or death so mm -hmm. it can be difficult for a lot of them I know to to rise to that occasion to be able to to pivot as you did and mm -hmm. understand that, you know, perhaps the leadership needs something a little different. And it's, it's kind of why we, we are where we are in a lot of corporations at the moment. Yes, I agree. And in these chaotic times and these times filled with crisis, it's so important to know that you can learn how to deal with chaos and crisis. It's, I mean, I wasn't born with it. I had 
been in various situations where I had to stretch my muscles and I had to stretch myself and step outside of the box and have to do that. And if we have the confidence within ourselves coming from a place of empathy, coming from a place uh, um, of the softer leadership skills, that people will be a lot more successful in this type of culture, in this type of environment. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think um, I think it's, well, one, very timely, but um, it's really interesting that you went from the FBI to a, a coaching role Mm -hmm. in which it is about compassion and empathy and and completely the opposite of probably what you had to deal with in terms of the type of people uh, not in cyber not in cyber so much as as you would be you know one on one with with people in little saigon for mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So well, it, yeah I think it's all about treating people with respect. So whether I was in Little Saigon working with a gang member or briefing the director of the FBI, it doesn't really matter because when you're in a leadership position, you need to treat everybody the same. And I think that's where your authentic leadership style comes in. And I think that's what gets people to respect you and, and know that you're genuine and that you care about them. And that's so important right now in becoming unstoppable in dealing with chaos, crisis, and change. Um, absolutely, and I think that that's a really good point: is leadership uh, with your people rather than for your people. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So let's go into where you are now, and and it is you you deal with you know dealing with chaos crisis and change. How is that? Um, how is that similar? But how is that different from, say, your your last position in cybersecurity? Well, I think it's it's similar because I like to serve people. I like to help people be the best that they can be, to stretch and to learn and to think outside of the box and to do great things because I consider that part of my legacy, especially when I look back on the FBI. But what I can do now is continue that and help others be better leaders, be more compassionate leaders, be able to navigate chaos, crisis, and change in a way that maybe they didn't think about because they haven't been in those catastrophic situations yes. like I have. But I don't want to put them in a catastrophic situation. However, I want to share the tools that I learned when I was in those situations to have them to help them be better at what they're doing and more successful and be more productive and um, financially, um, you know, get the ball down the road as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's a really good point of, of you passing on those tools. You know, <clears throat> the lessons that you learned, being able to pass them on without having people having to go through any kind of, of crises or chaos, mm -hmm. which I, I think makes a great deal of sense. Yeah. Now let's, oh, go I'm ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, I think people, I mean, right now, because there is so much chaos and there is so much conflict and so much crisis, again, it's important to look inward to find out or even recognize 
am I the one who's who's creating this? <laughs> am I trying to help or am I throwing gasoline on the fire? So a lot of it comes from self-awareness as to yes. why is there chaos and crisis and conflict in your life? How does it serve you? And if it doesn't serve you, these are the tools that you need to move forward so you can get down the road and be unstoppable. Absolutely. And I think that's a, a really, really good point. Um, all of all of the information to get in touch with Gina will be on the page on the site. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> uh, what I I wanted uh, you to be able to share is your podcast. Let's talk a bit about Behind the Crime Scene. Behind the Crime Scene is a true crime podcast. We go beyond the yellow tape and into the lives of first responders prosecutors and investigators who work true crime. And it's so important for me to, I mean, again, I, I told you that I enjoyed writing. Uh, I'm a very creative person. And this is an opportunity for me to tell stories in such a way that humanizes law enforcement. So we had um, OJ, um, the OJ Simpson lead prosecutor on the show, Marsha Clark's boss. And he talked about what haunted him from the OJ trial. And that's a really fascinating case. And it's a reminder that that whole case started with domestic violence. And um, so that that was an interesting case that uh, we had, um, gosh, we've done uh, the Boston bombing, Mar the Boston Marathon bombing. Yep, so we've had that case on. <laughs> and so really what I do is I, we go behind the crime scene, we talk about the case, and then I ask these prosecutors and first responders what haunted them about it, what, um, what really impacted them and the lessons that they've learned. And we, I want to share that with, uh, with my listeners. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. And it's not just in the Laurel, uh, excuse me, Laurel County, Orange County area. It's not just California. You're, you're talking about actual true crime all over. Absolutely. Yes. We've had cases from all, all over. Um, you know, our, our first case on our podcast was the boy in the bunker who was kidnapped off of a school bus and that was in the Midwest. And yeah. uh, luckily the FBI rescued him. We've got a couple of um, crimes against children cases. I worked crimes against children for five years and it's just so important for people to be aware. Um, I, I even two weeks ago, we did something on teen safety and that's not only for teens, it's also for parents to keep their kids safe, not only online, but in the physical form as well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And that one, I think for all parents, they should listen in because it is, it's critically important. Because a lot of times, I think because a lot of people don't necessarily understand everything that goes on in social media or everything that goes on in the internet, parents sometimes will turn a blind eye and you really can't do that in this day and age. It is so much more dangerous for children. Yes, yes. And I there's um, the National Center Missing and Exploited uh, the National Center for Mix Missing and Exploited Children, they have great resources on teaching parents and teaching kids how to be safe online, how not to be a victim of any crime. So that's a good place for people to go if they're, and they have videos yeah. and they've got a ton of great information. Oh, good, good. Yeah, we can put those links up as well because it's always good to help out and make people, uh, let them be safe, let their kids be safe for sure. 
Yes. But if anybody is interested in true crime and uh, they want to hear from the experts, I, I bring all the experts, all of my friends are coming in and, uh, and, and talking about major cases. So these are definitely cases that you've heard before. In fact, we did one on BTK, the BTK Strangler. Yeah. And uh, the gentleman on the show, he was the supervisor for the FBI over that case. But he told the story about how when he was 10 years old, he used to hang out with his cousins and they would be outside around the fireplace and uh, they would scare each other and talk about BTK. And then 20 something oh, years later, he was uh, wow. in charge of uh, the FBI wow. case to, yeah. to take him into custody. So it's, it's really an interesting show. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds amazing. And I know one of the ones that, that I recently listened to was the beginning of your series about Elaine Maxwell. Yes, yes. That's a fascinating case with Jeffrey Epstein. And, and it's very rare for a woman to be a pedophile, to be a predator like that. And because usually women, I mean, if they do something like that, it's going to be more for emotional reasons or psychological reasons versus the physical reasons why a man would do something like that. But I think it's going to be very interesting to see if names come out of the other people who were involved in abusing these uh, survivors. So once a month, we have a show on that, on Ghislaine Maxwell. We call it the Maxwell Chronicles. And we, uh, we talk about the latest and greatest news on Ghislaine Maxwell. Yeah, and I think there's nothing better than getting it from the people who actually deal with these things. So the beauty of your podcast is this is not third or fourth hand. It's actually coming from the people that were involved. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's always and, better to get the real story, right? Yeah, and it humanizes law enforcement and we can... Yeah see that we, we do have a sense of humor. It might be a little off sometimes, but we do have a sense of humor and we can be entertaining. <laughs> oh, not only, not only that, you can be very empathetic and very compassionate. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. You know, and I think it's unfortunate right now that, that people are losing sight of that with, with what's going on. And uh, it's not just in America, it, it's, yeah. it's going on everywhere. So it, it's kind of nice to get something from the other side and, and see that law enforcement is also human. Thank you. Yeah. That's what we aim yeah. to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm about to wrap us up here and I want to ask you, as I ask all my guests to leave our audience with a tip or a tweak or something that they can use in either their personal and, and or their business life that something you do, either daily, weekly, something like that. You know, when I talk about chaos, if we can manage chaos, if we can control chaos, that's so important. And a lot of times we create the chaos for ourselves. So I, what I tell people is to take a look at what it is that you're tolerating in your life. The things, whether it's a leaky faucet, whether there's boxes that need to be unpacked, whether it's a relationship, you know, we don't need to, if we just write those things down and if we start eliminating the things that we tolerate, that's going to expand our ability and the space within our minds to deal with the crisis as opposed to just being stuck on the treadmill of being involved in chaos all day long. So if you write it down, prioritize that list and then just start 
knocking them off. Okay, so every time I go into the kitchen now and my faucet is fixed, you know, that makes me feel like I've accomplished something. And if you do that in depth, you know, that go into your relationships and not tolerate certain things, again, you're going to have that freedom and you're going to have more energy and you're going to have more impact when it comes to dealing with the really big things in your life. Oh, that's such a, that's such an excellent tip. Absolutely. Uh, wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm chuckling because the chaos in my life at the moment is actually our dog. Uh-oh. Oh, no. Four-pound four pound chihuahua who is really <laughs> used. So, yes, it's, it's, that's the chaos. And actually, I'm going to take a page out of your book there. That tip is is very applicable to me, and I will write it down, and I am, in fact, dealing with it. This is day three. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, I'm in the process of writing a book about navigating chaos, crisis, and change. And so if uh, people want to go to my Gina L. Osborne website and sign up, I'll uh, keep people uh, updated on where we're going with that and, uh, and when it's going to come out. I'll, I'll bet you've got a few books in you. Oh my gosh! I, I want I want to do fiction. That's what I'm working on right now, and, and so I've never lost my my desire to to create. So I'm I'm, I'm working on a couple of television shows right now too. Oh, that's fabulous! Absolutely yeah. fabulous! And it really would give it a, a a different approach when it's someone who's actually been within what you're talking about. Even though you you're going to write fiction, you have sort of the real deal from the inside. So it's going to feel more real when people are reading it. Well, I love strong female characters and I have known so many strong characters in my lifetime, the role models that I have had. So they really seep into my writing because without them moving the way, I mean, I wouldn't have gotten to where I got within the FBI. So that's so yeah. important. Oh, that's that's great. Well, I I look forward to reading the book and whatever comes after, and I look forward to the TV shows too. That's going to be really exciting. I I must say thank you very much. This is I could probably talk to you all day. <laughs> I'm sure you have enough stories. Yeah, you have yeah. enough stories. You could give us all kinds. But what I'd like to do is tell our audience that it would be great for you to listen into Behind the Crime Scenes podcast. Remember, the links will be on the BBT, BBP TV show page for Gina L. Osborne. Thank you ever so much, Gina. You have been an amazing guest. And we'll be back in this time, just a week, because with everything that's going on around us at the moment, I think there are a number of people that I want to bring to you so that you can get a feel for maybe what you can do, as Gina said, uh, to handle the chaos in your life, but also to to manage the health, the wellness, the, the mental health, and all of those pieces. And we're going to be having some people coming up that are actually going to help with that as well. Until then, make the best of your today every day. And we will definitely see you next time. Bye for now. Thank you, Gina. Thank you so Thanks. much. Thank you, Elaine. Brought to you by BBP TV Show and Troll Social, helping small biz navigate the digital world.